Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Christopher Patterson, and I am the host of this podcast, New Books in Asian American Studies. Today, we are joined by Ellen Wu, who is an assistant professor of history and American studies at Indiana University. Today, we will discuss her book, The Color of Success, Asian Americans and the Origins of the Model Minority, which was published by Princeton University Press in January of... Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Christopher Patterson, and I am the host of this podcast, New Books in Asian American Studies. Today, we are joined by Ellen Wu, who is an assistant professor of history and American studies at Indiana University. Today, we will discuss her book, The Color of Success, Asian Americans and the Origins of the Model Minority, which was published by Princeton University Press in January of 2014. The Color of Success charts the complex emergence of the model minority myth in in fashioning Asian American stereotypes throughout the 20th century. Wu investigates how inclusion of Asian Americans rather than exclusion can still reproduce racist attitudes and, in effect, reproduced exploitation and violence onto other communities of color. In doing so, Professor Wu reinterprets the model minority myth as less a way of comparing Asians with whites, but, all, but rather or also as a way of characterizing Asian Americans as definitively not black. Ellen, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, could you begin the interview by describing the int- intellectual trajectory that brought you to write uh, the book Color of Success and what kind of made you interested in the first place in uh, Asian American studies? Sure. Well, I am what I call a second generation Hoosier Chino. So I am Chinese American and my parents um, immigrated to North America in the 1960s and then eventually found their way to Indiana in the early 1970s. Um, so I grew up in Indianapolis um, in a very, um, in a, in a, within a Chinese community, but it was a very small one. Mm. Although we had, um, although we attended a Chinese church every Sunday, and I also had the opportunity um, to go to Chinese school on the weekends as well. Um, And so for me, I guess I could say that my um, trajectory is intellectual trajectory for this book began, um, I would say, in college. Um, I attended Indiana University Bloomington as an undergrad. Oh, and um, my second year at IU, I uh, took this course that was sort of this experimental course that was essentially an introduction to Asian American studies. So at the time, uh, Asian American studies was, wasn't a permanent or regular part of the um, the college uh, curriculum. It was just kind of, you know, here and there, somebody might teach a class, but for me, it was really great. It was so eye opening, And, you know, I learned in that class about so many, um, concepts and, um, you know, I got to watch films and read literature and learn this history that I really had not been, uh, exposed to before. And one of the key concepts that we learned in this class uh, this course, which was taught by a woman, and I believe she's a professor now, um, named Yuko um, Kurahashi, um, 
she taught us about um, the so-called you know, model minority stereotype. Hmm. And for me, it was like a light bulb went off because um, it helped to explain things that um, I had observed just growing up in terms of the ways that people I uh, lived around, how they stereotyped uh, or understood, you know, Asian Americans. And I, and I think that makes sense because the people that, you know, growing up in a place like the Midwest um, that didn't have a long, in Indiana, didn't necessarily have a long history of a, of a large Asian American community, but lots of people did come after, you know, 1965 when immigration uh, laws were reformed. So a lot of folks, for instance, worked for um, like Eli Lilly, right? So um, the people, I knew in the Asian American community, a lot of them were, you know, from the parents were, you know, highly educated and, and et cetera. So anyway, um, the, you know, learning about the model minority concept was very interesting to me as a, you know, college sophomore. And I also got more deeply involved in, um, you could call it, I guess, Asian American um, activism on campus. Mm. And all of that really led me to, uh, you know, abandon my plans for going to medical school after I also really very good at, you know, science. And, um, I decided that I wanted to maybe one day become like a historian or something along those lines. So I went to UCLA and I got a master's in Asian American studies. Mm. From there, um, I, I did decide, you know, this is something I want to try. And so I ended up, um, doing a PhD in um, American history Mm. at the city of Chicago, where I studied with, um, then a new assistant professor named May Nye, who mm-hmm. of course now is, you know, one of the probably the foremost um, historian of, you know, immigration to the United States. Um, and so when I started thinking about a dissertation topic, I knew I wanted to do something in Asian American history. And at this time, this was like around 1999, 2000. And I was... Um, so two things happened. The first was that I took an amazing seminar on post World War II American society with um, Professor George Chauncey. Did mm-hmm. in this period, like from the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. And then I also, um, you know, had I knowing Asian American studies scholarship, and there was so much about the mono minority, what's called the mono minority myth, which is essentially critical scholarship about this stereotype and its harmful implications. But very little had been done on the historical, you know, on its historical emergence, mm. right? Didn't know much about that. And so that's how I ended up um, working on this topic, which was first my dissertation, and then, you know, over time became my book. So what was that term you used earlier, the, the Hoosier Chino, the, however you described yourself before? Hoosier Chino is just my way of saying, you know, a Chinese-American uh, from Indiana, I guess. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I was going to open up actually asking about the model minority myth. It seems like uh, many critiques have been made about the myth since the 1960s. Uh, what, would about, what was it about the myth that you felt was missing or that you felt like historical analysis could really add to our understanding of it? That's a great question. I think the number one thing that I felt um, unsatisfied by, by the um, explanations at the time that I began my dissertation, was that conventionally in Asian American studies, scholars have, um, you know, rightfully pointed out that uh, the model minority myth became used by basically, you know, white people as a way to, you know, discipline black people, right, or as a way to... Mm -hmm 
counter the claims of uh, activists in the Black freedom movement. But I, I think what has always been missing in that narrative is Asian Americans themselves, right? I, I, I wasn't ready to believe that this was something. And often the story is told like, oh, you know, the first time we heard about the mono minority was in this 1966 article by William Peterson in the New York Times magazine. And then another article that same year in U.S. News World Report. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think as a historian, I was very skeptical. Like, how could that, how, how could those articles, you know, those articles had to come from somewhere, right? And again, I wanted to understand Asian Americans' own role in in the creation of this new image. I just couldn't believe that their Asian American Asian Americans had no place in the process. Hmm. So that's really what I that was kind of my entry point into this. So to to kind of get at this history, you you uh you, to get at the various attitudes that helped produce this myth, you consider the post World War II period, I think that's that's the period you're mostly dealing with as one of racial liberalism. I've heard other scholars like uh, Jody Melamud use this term, racial liberalism, before. Uh, but can you tell us a bit about what that is and how it emerged? Sure. Um, so racial liberalism. So liberalism is a a, um, a political philosophy that has run through the course of American history. Mm. And liberalism, I mean, it's, it's a slippery concept because it's, it's so, I guess, you know, big, it's so capacious. Mm -hmm. Um, But what historians generally understand liberalism to be um, kind of based on a few core concepts, such as freedom and what's called rational self-interest and also a belief in human progress. Okay. So um, over the course of, U.S. history, liberalism has taken different forms. Uh, and by, um, by the 1940s, um, liberalism came to encompass a real emphasis on the assimilation and integration of racial minorities. So race wasn't necessarily a big part of liberalism, I would say. I mean, well, Maybe I shouldn't say that, but but this particular aspect of race in terms of assimilation and integration really came to the fore in the 1940s, um, in large part because of the United States' ambitions in the world, right? The U.S. was fighting first in World War II against the Nazis and the fascists, and then in the Cold War against the communists, and the United States really thought itself to be this leader of the free world, mm. uh, but it also... American political leaders also were quite aware that uh, people around the world, uh, including, you know, the, let's say in the World War II, Japan or like the Soviet Union during the Cold War, people around the world were very critical of the United States making these claims to be this, you know, shining beacon of democracy mm-hmm. when act, um, racial minorities you know, uh, were treated so terribly, right, uh, domestically, right, at home. So I think uh, this is really the period when racial liberalism takes off and American, lots of Americans decide that, you know, they need to solve the racial problem at home. And the way they're going to solve it is through this real um, emphasis on assimilation. Mm-hmm. It seems like that word assimilation, though, seems to change a bit towards um, towards the word uh, inclusion. Like that seems to be the big kind of catchphrase of a lot of the discourse here that uh 
you know, they're not quite being like made totally American, but they're being included. And it feels like that's like an important part of the book that we're, we're kind of taught to think once you include somebody in something, race kind of goes away mm-hmm. uh, in some ways. Uh, but you focus a lot on in- inclusion uh, as a different kind of mode of power, mm-hmm. uh, I think, for racial liberalism. Can you tell us a bit about uh, maybe what you're trying, what you're going for there, like how inclusion does that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, scholars, I'll just say in Asian American history, for instance, um, there's a lot of, there's been a recent scholarship has really emphasized, and I'm, and here I'm thinking of people like Ichiro Zimor Menai, that, um, you know, exclusion, exclusion and inclusion in sort of the national community, if we can say it like that, right, the national polity, they're not these like, uh, mutually exclusive processes, or you know, it, it's not like United States. The United American history has just gotten better. You know, America has just gotten better over time, and that you know, the circle of inclusion just keeps on widening, right? But I, I think in the book, I really wanted to show that you know, a lots of a lot of Americans, you know, powerful people and ordinary people alike, really move to. Um, kind of include people of Asian ancestry sort of in the American national community. But a lot of the motivation for doing this was this um, understanding that Asians were somehow still different, right? Mm -hmm. And difference in the exclusion era had justified, uh, you know, bars to immigration or naturalization or terrible, you know, violence and segregation. Uh, But in this period beginning in World War II, um, that difference is now a lot of people now see that difference as an asset. For for one, for example, it's a way for the U.S. to kind of make connections to, you know, Asia during the Cold War and try to win these, you know, new uh, these Asian countries to the U.S. side of the the rivalry with the Soviet Union. Hmm. Yeah, the I'm mean, just to kind of uh, follow from that. During that same period, it also seemed crucial to. Um, as you kind of put it in the book to break the white black binary. Uh, but that we shouldn't all like immediately celebrate, you know, disrupting that binary um, because what ends up happening, as you say, the, with the model minority myth is it defines Asian Americans as definitively not black. Um, and you, you kind of imply also like not these other, you know, ethnic rate, not Hispanic uh, as well. Um it seems that we kind of have a habit of just reading Asian America as well as other minority groups with comparing them immediately to white um, Anglo-Americans. Mm-hmm. But what happens, do you think, when we start focusing on these other groups? Uh, and how did, uh, like, in whose interest is it, I guess, that they were uh, characterized as not black or as definitively not black? I think that's a great question. And I think it's an uncomfortable one in some ways, right? Because... Um, I think that today, for instance, um, you know, there are a lot of, we could call them progressive Asian Americans, myself included, I suppose, you know, we have a lot of investment in claiming this um, identity as people of color, right? And sort of talking and demonstrating how we are allies with um, all these groups like African Americans or Latinas, Native Americans, et cetera. Um, But what I wanted to show in the book was that, um, I guess I should first say that, you know, the argument I make in the book is that by the 1960s, well, one of the arguments uh, that Asian Americans come to be, you know, Americans come to racialize Asian Americans as what I call definitively not black. Hmm. And I think um, 
I don't know. I wouldn't say that Asian Americans, you know, started off during World War II having this particular goal in mind. In a lot of ways, it was intended consequence. Mm -hmm. But um, I will. I do think that there is a kind of. Um, so for Asian Americans themselves, I, I, I think that since then there has been a kind of, uh, in a way, a kind of social capital, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, Asian Americans, of course, we experience racism in lots of different ways, but they don't, it doesn't, the racism that I think Asian Americans face today, you know, still looks different than, if my, my crude, you know, in very crude way saying, than um, kind, the kinds of uh, racism that um, disproportionately affects, uh, let's say, African American communities, for instance, you know, the high rates of incarceration, right? It is not the same kinds of problems. Um, and, you know, I think this is actually a current debate right now raging sort of on Twitter and such about, well, is there such a thing as Asian American privilege, et cetera? And so that's something, you know, I can't answer for sure because I haven't yet studied that period. But, but backtracking to the 40s through the 60s, I think that um, this new stereotype of Asian Americans, I did benefit, um, I guess, the United States as a whole or the people in power and the people who wanted to, in some ways, uh, either maintain the kind of domestic status quo or expand U.S. power uh, overseas. And that is to say that um, having a group like Asian Americans and being able to point to them and say that there is a minority, there are minorities in America, racial minorities in American society that seem to, you know, do well or quote unquote assimilate without problem um, is a way to say, you know, <laughs> isn't America so great? And, you know, we really don't need to fix, like it's, we don't have these, the problems of race are not deep structural problems. They're problems of culture, right? And if people just behave in a certain way, then they'll be fine. Hmm. Yeah. That seems to be one of the backbones of racial liberalism is it starts to turn everything towards culture. Uh, mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask a quick question about your method, because as I was reading through the book, there's so much detailed information and so many anecdotes, like just that are kind of, that are a pleasure to read. Um, but it does seem like a lot of research and I'm just Curious uh, if you can tell us about your method in collecting the data, what types of archives you found yourself pulling from most. You take a lot from speeches, a lot from, uh, uh, and a lot from newspapers and all sorts of newspapers all around the U.S. So can you tell us a bit about uh, your experience doing research for the project? Sure. Um, I, as far as the research methods for uh, the book, um, I would say that, you know, if you're a historian, like to historians, I would say that it's kind of this mashup of like political history, social history, cultural history. Um, and by that, I mean that I really try to um, look at sort of both what was happening on the ground in Asian American communities, as well as what was happening outside of Asian American communities. So in some ways, this book is trying to tell these different stories. Like it's trying to tell what, about what's happening within like, let's say Chinese American or Japanese American communities at the time and the sort of power struggles that people had. Right. Um, and so for that, I used um, ethnic newspapers. I used um, organizational and personal papers. So, um, and let me think what else I would say. Those were the main ones. Um, I also relied heavily, for instance, on, there's an archive at uh, UCLA called the Japanese American Research Project. Mm -hmm. um, and so I use a lot of 
that documentation and especially the papers of a group called the Japanese American Citizens League. Mm. Um, and then as far as looking at sort of larger society as a whole, I relied heavily on, you know, the mainstream press. So big, you know, kind of major newspapers, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times, um, major uh, magazines, you know, Life Magazine, Look Magazine, that kind of stuff, Newsweek and Time. Mm-hmm. I also did a lot of research at the National Archives. So I used um, government documents, like the papers of the State Department, for instance, um, congressional records, congressional debates, um, a lot of the documentation that came out of the World War II Japanese-American internment experience. Um, And I'm trying to think if I missed anything else. And then sort of like just different things here and there, Um, Japanese-American internment camp newspapers, um, the organizational papers of like the Chicago, um, the Chicago resettlers, collect, you know, the, the resettlement, um, organization and, um, you know, the Hawaii state archives and the Hawaii statehood commission. So this research actually took me to a lot of places around the country. Did you end up doing uh, any interviews uh, for the book or because there seems like so many people from this era still alive or, you know, did people from this era particularly influence uh, your writing? I did. Um, I, what I, I would say I sort of shied away from doing an ex- extensive oral history interviews, but mm-hmm. was really lucky. Um, in 2003, I actually sat down to have a conversation with uh, Jade Snow Wong. And, uh, you know, she's really nice because I didn't know her. I just like random graduate student. I wrote her this letter and she called me. And she's like, come on over to my travel agency. So we talked mm-hmm. for a while and, you know, I'm sure that she had been interviewed for that. But she was gracious enough to talk to me. Um, I also had a great conversation with a woman named Betty Lee Sung, who is a retired sociology professor from um, City College of New York. And Betty Lee Sung did um, a lot of groundbreaking research on Asian Americans uh, during her time. And she also, interestingly, did a radio show in the 40s and 50s for Voice of America, and the radio show was about Chinese Americans. So that was what I was most interested in talking to her about. Um, I also had um, sort of email correspondence, and I met in person uh, this uh, wonderful woman named uh, Setsuko Matsunaga Nishi, who was a uh, sociologist for decades uh, and really did groundbreaking research on Japanese uh, Americans. And so she really, I, I, I didn't do a formal interview of her, but she really helped me uh, especially steer the first chapter of the book, which is about uh, the resettlement of Japanese Americans mm-hmm. to from the camps. And she was heavily involved with that at the time. Uh, let's go right into that first chapter. I found it really fascinating. I was, uh, I like the the pictures of of uh, Japanese Americans in zoot suits. I thought that was interesting, and the whole uh, uh, the war relocation authority uh, relocating Japanese, um, and also you know giving having this chance or this uh, creating the conditions of possibility, I suppose, to recreate Japanese identity after internment to do it in a, in a at least by the WRA. It seems in a very deliberate way um, as a response to this the kind of growing youth. Uh, Movement. So can you tell us a bit about the WRA, the War Relocation Authority, uh, and how they attempted to refashion ethnic Japanese into kind of model Americans? Yes. Um, and so this goes back to your um, question about racial liberalism, Chris. So, um, you know, we often think of Japanese-American internment as, as an 
rightfully so. It's this terrible and tragic experience that robs people of so many things, right? Their civil liberties and their freedoms and their lives. Um, but the people who ran the War Relocation Authority, that was the civilian agency under the Department of the Interior that, you know, managed the, you know, administered the concentration camps, uh, they had other goals. You know, they definitely, what they talked to, at the time, they met, they talked about how they did not want to end up with what they called something akin to Indian reservation. They didn't want to have this permanent uh, population of Japanese, like in the desert or whatever. So their idea was to America, use this opportunity to Americanize the Japanese American prisoners. And then in time, um, sort of prepare them to assimilate into mainstream American society. So what they wanted to avoid actually was also for Japanese Americans to return to the West Coast, to return to uh, the little Tokyo enclaves, right? But this, they had this fantasy of, you know, <laughs> of um, sort of having Japanese Americans disappear into the middle class and like sort of scattered all over the country. Mm-hmm not live around each other, but they would live around, uh, you know, white middle-class people. So, um, uh, so in 1943, the war relocation authority began what was called the resettlement project. And the idea here was to start, you know, first of all, finding, you know, they hope to find uh, jobs for Japanese Americans in places like Chicago and Denver and New York, and then you know, kind of slowly start to let these um, Japanese American internees uh, out into the real world and um, have them, you know, assimilate in uh, like good Americans. And uh, it, interestingly, this meant that um, when let's say you were a young, you know, person who wanted to leave camp and take a job in Chicago, like in a factory or something, uh, you would still have to go through what was called a and the war relocation authority would sit down, interview internees and ask them like, do they promise, you know, not to hang out in groups of Japanese people more than like two or three at a time in public. And they were supposed to, you know, promise not to speak Japanese, you know, in public or do Japanese things and, or just like draw attention to themselves. Okay. The idea again, make them very, you know, inconspicuous. Right. And, um, and then if they passed these interviews then they were allowed to go. And so in this first chapter, I, I, this first chapter is basically about this resettlement project, but how a group of um, some young Japanese Americans who, uh, you know, were zoot suitors basically uh, really presented a problem for the resettlement project because of course they were in some ways the very opposite of what they were uh, told to do by the government, which is, you know, kind of blend in and don't be, you know, don't stand out, right? Because they're standing out. They're wearing these zoot suits and um, they're also, and not just the zoot suitors, but a lot of young Japanese American resettlers um, often ended up doing the opposite of what they were told to do by the government, right? Mm. They not to hang out with each other. Uh, and also uh, a lot of the Japanese Americans, they would um, accept jobs. They would, you know, jobs as, you know, housekeepers or factory workers, and sometimes they didn't like their jobs and they would just quit, you know, and they wouldn't tell their employers. And, you know, the WRA was just horrified because they felt like doing that just gave Japanese Americans um, a bad a bad name, right, a bad image. Um, and so this chapter is really about 
um, in the end, you know, sort of um, contrary to what the federal government had hoped, in places like Chicago, Japanese Americans, you know, by the late 1940s actually in some ways reconstituted an ethnic community, uh, you know, in Chicago. They had a Japanese American organizations, you know, clubs, um, basketball teams, uh, this kind of thing. And even the federal authorities over time conceded that maybe this was the best thing for Japanese Americans in the time being, right? Because they had just gone through this traumatic experience. But, you know, over time, in the end, the end goal was still assimilation into the white middle class. Mm-hmm. So much of it seems driven by this kind of anxiety that, you know, oh, we just incarcerated all these people. Uh, you know, <laughs> you know, what are they going to do as a kind of response? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, do you follow up on that with uh, how Japanese Americans themselves started to respond to this. Uh, I mean, you, you talk quite a bit about how there was a lot of diversity politically uh-huh. in Asian America, but it kind of gets drowned out um, by uh, the JACL and some other organizations. So can you tell us a bit about the response to this and how the JACL either kind of continued the, the WRA's model or, uh, you know, refashioned it in other ways? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, this goes back to the earlier point I made about, I wanted to know what was, what were the roles of Asian Americans in, you know, ultimately fashioning or inventing this model minority image and the Japanese American citizens league, which, um, so the Japanese American citizens league, I'll try to say this very briefly was a group of second generation or what were called Nisei uh, Americans um, who came of age in the twenties and 1920s and 1930s. And they, understood that their prospects for living in an American society weren't great at the time, right? And so they did a lot of things to try to prove to other Americans that they were worthy of being included and recognized as American citizens. Um, And when World War II broke out, um, a lot of the first generation, the immigrant um, generation, those leaders were put behind bars or otherwise silenced, right? Because uh, the government could sort of accuse them of having these ties to Japan. So the JACL leadership sort of stepped in into this um, leadership vacuum in the community. Um, And I would say that they weren't terribly popular at the time. You know, other people also try to step in, but the JACL managed to do it, um, and then they started to see themselves as like the spokespersons for the Japanese American community or like the intermediaries between the community that is the incarcerated population and the federal government. And so one of, and this was very controversial because a lot of the people in the community did not see the JCL in that way. Uh, the JCL were some of the first people to heavily um, push for the idea of um, military service as a way for Japanese Americans to prove their patriotism, loyalty, and their you know worthiness for being recognized as full Americans. Um, and so they worked with the WRA, that is the War Relocation Authority, and other federal agencies to begin, uh, first of all, they thought they could get a volunteer, you know, kind of an all-volunteer Japanese-American regiment. Mm -hmm. Uh, Over time, they ended up drafting people because they just couldn't get enough volunteers. So um, 
the third chapter of my book uh, really traces what I call the birth of the Nisei, that is the Japanese-American soldier. And this is not to diminish, you know, I don't mean to um, diminish the actual battlefield sacrifices that real people made. I mean, those were very real and lots of people, lots of Japanese Americans lost their lives fighting this war. But I think I, I was really more interested in, in how uh, military service became a kind of strategy, a kind of public relations strategy for the Japanese American community. And I should say that, again, it was very controversial and a very unpopular decision among many Japanese Americans. So the JCL was always very controversial in its decision-making. So after World War II, um, the JCL continued to push this Nisei soldier concept, right? The idea that Japanese Americans were loyal and they had fought in the war. And because of that, they deserved, they deserved rewards. They deserved, for instance, um, the rights to naturalization for their parents who were barred from naturalization. Uh, they deserved, um, they, you know, JCL also called for an end to Japanese exclusion law so that immigrants could, re- you know, come from Japan again. Mm-hmm. Uh, the JCL also pushed very heavily for the Japanese American community to get, um, you know, reparations for its monetary financial losses during the internments and other kinds of, um, you know, other kinds of civil rights reforms. And um, I guess I've lost my train of thought. Did the, I'm just curious if the JCL in the, the, the kind of discourse that they, that they had at the time, were they also relying on culture, you know, cultural background as kind of one of the reasons why they, they were this kind of model American or the model soldiers? I think, yes, over time they do. Um, so the JCL has basically has two, two projects after World War II. And the first is to, what I call, you know, rehabilitate or, um, you know, re, yeah, rehabilitate the image of Japanese Americans as a whole, right, in the eyes of American society. But its other simultaneous project is to rehabilitate its own, that is the League's own image within the Japanese American community. So those two things are happening at the same time. And um, uh, one of the ways that they try to do it is to help tell the story in the 1950s of Japanese Americans' amazing recovery from the trauma of internment. And over time, and not just the JCL, but you know, mainstream journalists and social scientists start to talk about, start to try to explain how is it that Japanese Americans, within a couple of decades, managed to seem to do so well, right, and get over it. Uh, and there were JCL and other folks did use cultural um, explanations, so that by the ni- mid 1960s, in the throes of the Black Freedom Movement, you have people like the JCL. Uh, and then other, again, other mainstream commentators, social scientists, and journalists comparing Japanese Americans to African Americans um, and basically saying, you know, Japanese Americans have a certain kind, have a certain, possess a certain stable of cultural traits, right? Mm-hmm. That are from Meiji Japan, like, uh, you know, reverence for education and strong families. And they, you know, they worked hard. They didn't really complain. They kind of kept their heads down. And that helps to, you know, that explains why um, they seem to be doing so well a generation after, you know, two two decades after uh, internment. Mm-hmm. It is interesting in some of the, the records that you pull, the internment was kind of compared a lot to slavery, 
uh, for African Americans that, you know, why did it take blacks so long to, you know, as you kind of put it like in that language to get over something. Uh, and so there was always this implicit, like, oh, they came back from tragedy so fast, you know? Yes. Yes. Uh, so let's move to, uh, Chinese Americans, uh, and how the the afterlife of World War II kind of impacted them differently than the Japanese, uh, because for them it seems like right after World War II they have this opportunity to define themselves against Japanese. But then the Korean War starts and the Cold War starts, and it becomes almost like they're kind of living what the Japanese lived through in a way. They are. I think the key difference for the Chinese in some ways was that uh, in terms of international relations, you know, China had split into good China and bad China, right? So bad China was you know, mainland, the People's Republic of China after the, you know, communist revolution of 1949. Uh, And so all of a sudden the people, the PRC, I'll just call it the PRC, the People's Republic of China was now this like major enemy of the United States. On the other hand, uh, the nationalist Chinese, that is the the political party defeated in the Chinese civil war that had uh, fled to Taiwan, right? And Mm -hmm. And it called itself the Republic of China, and its leader was, you know, Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, Republic, the Republic of China, the Nationalists, became an important U.S. ally, right, during this period, the 40s, the 50s, of the early part of the Cold War. So, you know, Chinese in the U.S. never were able to shake off the idea that they were somehow still foreign, even as they were accepted as more American. But in some ways, I guess you might say, fortuitously for them, uh, this foreignness wasn't all like the scary enemy by the 40s and 50s, because now there was, you know, a good Chinese ally in Taiwan. Mm. So uh, what I look at in the book are um, what I basically um, a uh, anti-communist crusade in uh, the Americans' Chinatowns uh, beginning uh, in the early 1950s. So at the time when the People's Republic of China enters the Korean War on the side of the North Koreans, right, the Chinese in the U.S. start to really worry that they're going to end up in the same situation that Japanese Americans did during World War II. Mm-hmm. So uh, Chinese American uh, leaders really uh, – do a lot of things to try to signal to other Americans that they're patriotic and loyal and above all anti-communist. Mm-hmm. So they have, they have all these, uh, they establish all these anti-communism clubs in Chinatowns. They have lots and lots of parades, like anti-communist demonstrations. Um, and they, you know, they just, um, and, and for the concern, actually the leaders of Chinatown are quite conservative and they're also, um, they're interested in doing this because it gives them also a reason to, um, to I don't know what the word is to um, try to weaken uh, the Chinese the Chinatown left, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And that works out well for them because it's the McCarthyist era. They can work with the FBI and the INS to try to weed out uh, leftists in the Chinese American uh, community. Mm-hmm. In, in this particular chapter, I also talk about uh, the, United, the State Department, the U.S. State Department, and how uh, – so going along with recent uh, – this recent spate of what's called Cold War Civil Rights uh, Scholarship in U.S. historiography, uh, I became interested in how the United States State Department deployed Chinese Americans as cultural diplomats mm-hmm. – 
especially during the 1950s, right? And they would, uh, they used people like Jade Snow Wong, uh, this other famous artist at the time named Don Kingman. He was a famous um, watercolorist painter. Uh, also, uh, the San Francisco Chinese basketball team, you know, these folks were among the folks who were sent by the State Department abroad to showcase, uh, especially to um, overseas Chinese communities in the Asian Pacific Rim, uh, but other communities like people in, uh, you know, India and Pakistan, for instance, uh, that, you know, the United States was a welcoming place for its uh, minorities, including Asian Americans. Mm-hmm. It, it does seem interesting how uh, aggressive the Chinese American communities are in, in like in naming themselves as more Taiwanese or as more capitalist. Like mm-hmm. in some of the the uh, the quotes you you provide, they're literally like saying we should go more into business. You know, we should become more economically successful because that will prove that we're not communists. You know, yes. like it's it's interesting to politicize that move into the economic sphere as you know um, as this kind of anti-communist. It almost like it's a survival trait. Right, we have right. to do this, or otherwise we will be interned. You know, uh, so I, yeah. so, some ways I thought, who could blame them? You know, I think all Americans were kind of had this fearful of being accused of being communist. You know, mm-hmm. and then it's right that was very real, and and I think Chinese Americans had seen what had just happened to Japanese Americans. So you have to add the racial element on top of that, and I could. I mean, in some ways, I really uh, empathize with that impulse to try extra hard to prove to, you know, Americans, uh, you know, other people that you you don't, you know, you don't need to be (laughs) incarcerated or anything, right? That you're loyal to America. Mm -hmm. Let's let's move into the second half of your book, uh, which is more about uh, how Asian Americans were then typified as as non-black or as definitively non-black, yes. uh, especially during the 1960s and the civil rights movements and all that was happening. And it does seem like at this point, the especially here in the, in the early 1970s, the Asian American left starts to gain a bit more uh, clout, political clout, or at least a bit more of a voice. Right. Uh, can you tell right. us a bit about, about how that happened uh, and how the Asian Americans themselves responded to this, like to the kind of culture uh, the idea that, that their culture was somehow superior to the others, and that's what made them, you know, more successful in the U.S.? Okay, sure. Uh, so maybe I'll just backtrack just a little bit to talk sure. about how did the idea sort of take hold, right? And I think, again, as I mentioned earlier, on the one hand, there's, um, uh, you know, a lot of people are wringing their hands, and I'm just talking about overall in, American, in America, about what was called the Negro problem, and then eventually we knew as the, you know, civil rights or black power, right? And so in the case of the Japanese, as I already explained, uh, certain observers start to compare uh, Japanese America's rebound from internment with, you know, obviously the problems that African Americans faced. Uh, in terms of the, in terms of Chinese Americans, so again, the Chinese Americans are very worried about what might happen to them in the context of the Cold War, the Korean War, and McCarthyism. And so one idea that Chinese Americans, like spin doctors, basically, community leaders, really try to put out there in in sort of the public conversation is this idea that Chinese Americans have model families, right? And that children never get into trouble. And this really uh, resonates with lots of Americans in the 50s because uh, nationwide there's a whole panic or a scare about juvenile delinquency. And so in the 50s, especially, we see lots of articles in newspapers and magazines, you know, commentary by even U.S. congressmen about how these Chinese-American families are great because their children are so behaved. Um, 
And this idea really takes hold. And by the 60s, again, we have you, we get people like, uh, for instance, uh, Assistant Secretary of Labor Daniel Patrick Moynihan, right? He He's the one that mm-hmm. this fa- infamous, I guess, Moynihan report that basically, you know, he's a liberal and what he's trying to, it's, I mean, he's a liberal, he's a racial liberal. So he's basically suggesting that if black people just behaved more like white middle-class people, we might be able to get rid of black poverty, right? So again, he's making a cultural argument about a, a, a cultural type of proposal for solving the problem of black poverty. And he gets really criticized for doing this uh, in the 60s, like the mid-60s. And one way that he defends himself really is pointing to the Chinese and the Japanese and saying, look, again, here are some minority groups. They have, you know, the right kind of culture, i.e., and therefore they're doing well, right, in America. And um, at the same time, what we start to see in the late 60s and 70s is really the birth of the Asian American movement. Uh, And so... If in the 50s, for instance, and the early 60s, the Chinatown or the Chinese and Japanese American liberal to left, you know, they're, I mean, in some ways, the JCLs, they are liberals, right? They're racial liberals, too. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are people more on the left, like the Nisei progressives um, and then folks on the Chinatown left that are not as, you know, they don't, it's not a good time for them. But by the late 60s and early 70s, you know, there is a coming together of this Asian American progressives left uh, in in the Asian American movement. And one thing I think that really draws people together is actually critiquing this model minority idea and and its consequences, right? The idea that model my, the model minority is a way to denigrate Black people, Puerto Ricans, Mexicans, Native Americans. And it's also a way to... Um, help further the cause of American expansionism or imperialism, right? Mm-hmm. So, and, and people in the, Asian in the Asian American movement were very much um, drawn together in their opposition to the Vietnam War. So it is really this important moment in Asian American history, right? And I think one in some ways that comes out of this earlier history of um, this immediately, this immediately preceding history of the emergence of the model minority concept. Mm-hmm. It is interesting how unexpected that that gets for some, like that they would ally with these other racial groups because they there's been so much work it seems on making them seem distinct. Uh, you know, decades earlier. Um, uh, but let's uh, since we're running a bit low on time, let's move to your last chapter, which is on Hawaii. Okay. Uh, and it's it's kind of interesting because you break away a bit from the historical story you've been telling. And you deal mostly with Hawaii um, as it became a state and all the conversations around that. Uh, but it, it does become this really fascinating moment. Um, and I feel like people who uh, write about racial liberalism and pluralism don't really consider Hawaii. And that's always kind of weird when they do that <laughs> because it, it just seems so like integral to the story of how that, that concept develops. Um, so I'm really, I was really happy to see the last chapter is on Hawaii. But what do you, how do you feel Hawaii um, adds to the story and adds to our kind of conceptions of model minority myth and Asian Americans in the U S. Um, okay. Let me try to digest that question. I mean, I think that as I started revising my dissertation into this book, I realized I couldn't tell the story without looking at Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because, um, the argument that I make in this chapter is that in some ways, 
the question of Hawaii's statehood, because Hawaii was so heavily populated by people of Asian ancestry, that the question in the 40s and 50s, should Hawaii become a state, in some ways served as basically a referendum, a national referendum on what Americans thought about Asians. You know, in other words, it's kind of symbolic. Like, should we include, should, do Asian Americans deserve to be included as full citizens, right, in our national polity? And so I really want to argue that, you know, we can try to answer that question through the lens of Hawaii statehood. And why it's important to the story, too, is because um, it pulls together a lot of the threads, the themes of the book, right? It's a Cold War story in that people who were pro-statehood at this time felt like the reason to admit Hawaii is because it it is very different than the other parts of the mainland U.S., right? It is kind of foreign-ish, but that that foreignness is an asset in fighting the Cold War because people talked about it as being this bridge to Asia, right? Like the people there were somehow naturally qualified to serve as these ambassadors to Asia. And that's why Hawaii needs to be admitted into the uh, U.S. And the other thing that's important about the history of Hawaii is that um, for so long, I mean, I shouldn't say for so long, but since the early 20th century, because of its ethnic and racial diversity, some people had celebrated Hawaii as this kind of melting pot, right? And they didn't have, you know, a lot, there's a lot of intermarriage in Hawaii. So you see a lot of race mixing there that you don't see in the U.S. mainland. And again, I mean, that on one hand, that was very worrisome to people like Strom Thurmond, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't want to, I mean, sort of in public anyway, doesn't want to see people, you know, sleeping with people of other races or whatever. But um but I think Hawaii, for some people, uh, racial liberals, in some ways represented the best of what America might become, right? Which is sort of uh, this kind of racial paradise where people supposedly get along and marry across racial lines. And, you know, there's all these mixed race people and such. Um, and so over time, um, that story of Hawaii as racial paradise becomes part of this model minority story. And then, uh, you know, the Daniel Inouye is the first representative. He's American after Hawaii becomes a state. And Hiram Fong is Chinese-American. He's one of the first senators. And so there was a lot of attention at the time on uh, Hawaii. And, um, uh, you know, I end the book, one of the moments, the book kind of ends in this place where, um, for instance, uh, Senator Daniel Inouye is giving the speech at the 1968 Democratic National Convention. He talks about People ask him, why can't African-Americans be more like you, right? You know, be more like Japanese-Americans. Like, look how successful you are. And um, so I, I wanted to make this, tell this story about how, in some ways, these little, I guess, these different regional racial orders in Hawaii, in the U.S. West, in the North and the South, in some ways they get drawn together by the latter half of the 20th century. And we can see that happening in the history in this particular case, in the Hawaii uh, statehood story, you know, so that Honolulu starts to become to be talked about as not being like Newark or Detroit, right? And not having the same problems that the racial problems that we see in these kind of northern urban cities. Um, and I also wanted to bring this story into, I should say, because um, observers start to celebrate Asian Americans as like the future of Hawaii's estate and, and that native Hawaiians are sort of part of its vanishing past. Right. Mm-hmm. So I also want to show that the model minority um, concept isn't 
always just about, you know, denigrating African-Americans, but it, it does other things too. And in this particular moment, it's about, um, it's about, um, uh, it's about native Hawaiians as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, let, let's move right into your coda where you, uh, you kind of give some more purpose to the argument by displaying how the minority myth continues to affect Asian Americans, uh, how it's changed. Uh, and of course, throughout the book, just because I'm living now, you know, I keep th- I kept thinking of figures like Amy Trua. And then you do mention her in the coda uh, as someone who seems to be re-evolving or reiterating parts of this myth. Right. Um, can you talk a bit about how, how we should see this, this history for today and how we can look at uh, figures like her? Uh-huh. Well, I think, you know, it, <laughs> I think Amy Chua and I have, I have a complicated relationship with her. And in some ways I have to say, I appreciate what she's doing because it's so, first of all, I mean, obviously it's kind of outlandish, right? Like mm-hmm. her reading book and everything and the tiger mom thing. But, but because she has made such a splash in recent times, it has opened us a, for up a space for us to think about these issues of race and assimilation and, you know, and then also who gets to speak for the community, right? Which is a lot of thematically what's going on in the book. Um, and yeah, I would say that it might not be the most popular uh, argument, but one of the points I really want to make in the conclusion of the book is that, you know, in order to really um, dismantle the model minority concept, we actually have to recognize the political diversity of Asian America. And that does include folks like Amy Chua and other people who embrace this model minority concept and try to, you know, work hard at, you know, perpetuating it basically. Um, But I try to end in some ways on a hopeful note too, to say, you know, we also are living at a very exciting time as Asian Americans in that I would say, even in the last decade, the range of representations in popular culture has just really opened up in so many unexpected and exciting ways, right? Who would have thought, I would never even thought 10 years ago, we'd see someone like Mindy Kaling, right? A Mm -hmm. South Asian American woman who isn't like model skinny, as people always point out, right? Have her own, you know, show on Fox, um, Harold and Kumar and Jitlin Sanity and all those examples. And so, um, yeah, I really think that uh, in so many ways, unfortunately, Asian Americans today, Asian Americans today are still very much, um, we're still confined or constricted, restricted by this model minority concept. But I also think there, we start to see, we are starting to see a lot more uh, ways in which people are able to just kind of get beyond that paradigm. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's uh, go right. Uh, so I think we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, are you working on any new research now? I mean, this book just came out, so the, that might be a, ner- a nerve-wracking question. But what do you have in mind uh, later down the road? Uh, well, later down the road, my newest project that I'm trying to launch, in some ways we could call, um, it's sort of a sequel to this book, right? In that I want to look at Asian Americans in the age of affirmative action. So beginning in the 60s and taking it up through the present or at least very recent past. Um, and what I'm really curious about is how uh, Asian Americans are very anomalous in in kind of Asian uh, affirmative action and other kinds of, um, you know, racial policies, I guess we could call them. Uh, and most specifically, I'm call- right now I'm calling this project overrepresented because hmm. um, Asian Americans are generally not thought of as so-called underrepresented mm-hmm. minorities. And I'm really curious to see how that 
logic came about, right? It's not natural necessarily. So I really want to know the historical roots of that kind of thinking and then how it sort of, you know, has worked in tandem with new immigration from Asia and, you know, Latin America and uh, a kind of very different and complex racial landscape in the, in the, late 20th century. Mm-hmm. That, that is a really, sounds very interesting. Uh, I always have students, you know, that Asian American students who will ask me like why they don't get the same, um, uh, you know, uh, I guess they don't get to go to the same resources as the underrepresented minority students, you know, when they, when they still identify as people of color. Uh, so there's, there's, you know, it, on one hand, yeah, the, there is a, like a statistical over, like, not overrepresentation, but fair, I guess, fair. And then there's also this splitting of, you know, uh, of the communities, uh, you know, where race cross-racial solidarity seems less likely. Right. So, I mean, in some ways I think it makes a good project because there's no easy answers. So it will t- take me years and years to figure out some kind of, you know, explanation for that. But Okay. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for contacting me. This was, this is a really great read. It's very big and very complex. Like it, just every single chapter seems to have its own stories and anecdotes. So thank you so much for writing and thank you for being on the show today. Thanks for your time, Chris. I really appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to my interview with Ellen Wu on her book, The Color of Success. If you have any questions, grievances, or suggestions for books for this podcast, you can message me on the New Books on Asian American Studies Facebook page. See you next time.